Today marks exactly five months since I underwent open heart surgery, which means that because I was in the States about two weeks or so before, it's been five and a half weeks since I stood behind this months. Thank you. See there? That's the effects already. Five and a half months since I've stood behind this podium. So I hold on to this and I thank God for that. Um, I was praying and trying to configure on what I should be, what I should be preaching on this morning. At first I thought I would speak on how God has been working my life through these months and what I called the uh, Caleb syndrome. But I figured that might draw too much attention to myself. And I was reminded of uh, something I read about the French theologian John Calvin. John Calvin was an expositor of the word. He um, would start from the book of Genesis and go verse by verse in preaching throughout the year at his church, of which he was a pastor. And regardless whether it was Christmas or Easter, they didn't have Father's Day or Mother's Day back then, but I'm sure he wouldn't even regard those in his preaching. But he didn't let anything interrupt his sequential going through the word of God. Well, they had some problems with him in the church there because they were still fighting against the Roman church and so on. And he was expelled from his church. Actually, he was forced out of the city. And he had to stay away for three years. But after three years, he came back to be pastor of the same church. And he got up to the church on a Sunday morning, and he opened the Bible and began to preach from the very verse that he left off three years ago. So I figured now, although I'm no John Calvin or anything else like that, I figured I'd do the same thing. When I left here uh, five and a half months ago or so, we were on the book First Corinthians, and I left off at verse 7. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to First Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll pick up from verse 8. And I'd like for us to read this passage together. 8 to the end, verse 13. It should be up on the screen. Please read it with me. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If they are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now if you recall, this chapter 13 was introduced because of what Paul said at the conclusion of chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 31, Paul said, Let me show you a way of life that is best of all. That's how the New Living Testament translates it. My translation was, 
let me explain to you a guaranteed way that you can solve all the problems you're experiencing at Corinth. And if you recall, Corinth were experiencing a lot of problems, all kinds of problems. But now Paul says, you're going about things the wrong way. I want to show you the right way to go about ministering in the church and relating to one another. And so he introduces us to chapter 13. He's really dealing with how the church is to grow into maturity. Because spiritual gifts were given for that purpose, to lead us to spiritual maturity. That's the purpose for spiritual gifts, to build up and lead to spiritual maturity in Christ. The Corinthians had the means, but yet something essential was missing that prevented them from growing. They had the tools, but they still were not using them properly. The effect was not there. Paul had, in chapter 12, described about 19 or so manifestations of the Spirit that we call spiritual gifts. He named 19 of them in chapter 12. And he talked about that amazing dynamic that occurs when these gifts are manifested in the context of the body of Christ, the incredible body of Christ. What happens, he says, when the gifts are manifested properly? But now, in the case of the Corinthians, they were not experiencing this wonderful dynamic. Paul has a major problem with these. The members of the incredible body at Corinth were living as though they were not a part of the body. Even though Paul says that they were enriched with all the spiritual gifts, if there's any church that should have been spiritually mature, mature, it should have been the Corinthian church because they were enriched with all of the gifts. They had them in abundance. They were living and behaving as though they were unsaved, Paul says. And as a result, they were abusing the gifts. And undoubtedly, they were grieving the Holy Spirit who gave the gifts to them and was living within them. In fact, paradoxically, Paul implies that if it were not for the spiritual gifts, he probably would have not known that they were Christians because of the lifestyle that they were living. Even though they were using the gifts improperly, Paul could still understand that they were Christians because of that. One of the things that jumps up out at us right away then when we read this is to understand that spiritual gifts alone do not in any way assure spiritual maturity. It's not the gifts, it's the manner in which the gifts are expressed. Now, having, un, having discussed the unchristlike manner in which the gifts were being manifested and demonstrated at Corinth, Paul begins to look back over all of the problems that they had. And now he's going to detail for them exactly why it was what they did was not the proper thing to do. And this is an amazing thing here. He is saying now, you have the gifts, you were using them, but the spiritual growth was not there. So you were doing something wrong. There's something that was missing. And so he says at the end of verse 12, of chapter 12, let me explain to you a guaranteed way that you can solve the, the problems that you're experiencing. Now that's a principle that stands for us today. If we want to know how God wants us to live and relate to one another in the church, we can follow what Paul says in this chapter. 
And that brings us then to chapter 13, which I call, and I'm sure you call also, the love chapter. And what Paul is saying is here is what the church needs is love. Now, I'm sure that, well, I'm not sure that, that uh, Paul would have asked this fellow to sing this song, which I hope you can hear, but I believe he would agree with the message. that we misuse the chapter. When we look at it, we take it out of its context and apply it to everything other than the reason for which it was written. It was written to correct problems within the church. That's the reason for it. And everything that Paul talks about love here has to do with correcting the problems that were in the church of Corinth. Let's read the verse together again. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a tingling cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul is now talking about the indispensability of love versus the temporariness of spiritual gifts. He is saying here that love is indispensable, but spiritual gifts are temporary. We're going to, later on he's going to talk about the permanency of love versus the temporariness. But here he's talking about the fact that love is indispensable. Notice what he says. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. <clears throat> now, he is referring here to something specifically that the Corinthians did. In verse 5, he says that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. So he is saying now, you claim to have all these gifts of knowledge and that gift of uh, uh, prophecy, which is the gift of speech and so on. The gifts of tongues and all of that. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And he says that even if I had these gifts to the extreme, if I didn't demonstrate love and use in them, notice now, he says, I am nothing. He didn't say it didn't profit anything. He says, I am nothing. He's talking about the individual. Apart from love, no matter how good we may be in anything else, we are nothing Spiritually, That's his point. This is a strong thing here. Now, in verse, one, in verse 1, he's referring to the gift of languages or tongues, one of the major problems of the Corinthians church. In chapter 1, verse 5, as I said, he said that they were enriched with these gifts. In other words, they had them in abundance. But yet, they were not 
resulting in the growth of the church. Something is wrong. Now he goes throughout the chapter to show the same thing. Everything he mentions is something that the Corinthians said they had or they were doing. But they were doing it without love. And so he says they were doing it in a wrong fashion. Now he's using here what we call hyperbole. He's using extreme examples in order to make a point. When he says about uh, tongues, for instance, when he says, if I speak with the tongues of angels, it doesn't necessarily mean that angels speak a different language. He's just simply saying if it were true. In other words, he says, I don't care what kind of language they may be anywhere. If I had the ability to speak all of them, but I didn't do it in love, I am nothing. That's this point. By the way, this is true because if it was true that angels did have a law, we wouldn't be able to understand them because we're going to see that tongues are going to cease before we get to heaven. Therefore, if the angels have tongues, we're going to be able to talk to them. We'll be able to understand them. So he isn't saying there's such a thing as an angelic language. He's saying if there were, in other words, he's using extreme uh, illustration hyperbole to bring a point. No matter what it is, what kind of language or knowledge, if I have it to the extreme, if I don't exercise it in love, I am nothing. He goes throughout all of the things that the Corinthians were doing in order to demonstrate this point, to show the indispensability of love. And in fact, when he, speak, when he speaks about giving, he said, even if I gave all of my money, even if I gave my life, and I didn't do it in love, I'm nothing. And he goes throughout uh, the gifts that they were talking about to show that no matter what gift it is, if it is an exercise in love, the individual who has the gift is nothing when it comes to spiritual growth. Now, let's move on from the indispensability of love versus the temporariness of spiritual gifts and go over to another aspect where he's talking now about the virtues or excellencies of love in chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Please read that passage with me. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not bring and does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in righteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believe all things, hope all things, endures all things. Now the beautiful thing about this section here, which is not usually recognized, is that every one of these virtues that are mentioned here is something that they lacked, and it was demonstrated in how they exercised the gift. That's why he's talking about patience and jealousy and also because he's going to show that's what they did. And the reason why it was wrong is because they did it without love. And so in these short in these four short verses, Paul details all of the marks of immaturity and lack of love the Corinthians displayed, as he described in chapters 1 through 12. 
All of the errors is included right in this passage. And he's saying, now, if you apply these things, you correct everything you were doing. Now, if we had the time, we'd go through each one, <clears throat> but we don't. And I don't know if I'll last that long anyway. Now, this is a description of what love does. It is not a definition of love. It is what, manif- what, it is what love does or how it is manifested here. Paul personifies love to emphasize his teaching about the proper use of gifts. And how believers are to act one toward another in the church. And so he personalizes love. And he talks about what love does. By the way, normally when Paul talks about, in fact, all of the New Testament writers, when they talk about love, most of the time it has to do with action. Not just a feeling, but it has to do with doing something. And so Paul shows in sequential fashion how the Corinthians have missed the mark when it comes to love, which, as he will conclude, is the greatest of all virtues. And that the fact that they will outlast all spiritual gifts. And love is the crowning mark of spiritual maturity. And it is the virtue that is lacking in the Corinthian church. He's going to emphasize throughout here that love is an essential mark of spiritual maturity. There is no spiritual maturity without the manifestation of love. Notice that he says, love is patient, love is kind, and love is not jealous. Back in chapter 3, verse 3, this is what he said. You are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? So Paul is saying, that is showing here that you are fleshly because there's jealousy and you're not exercising love. The Corinthians were also impatient in public meetings. Remember, they wouldn't wait for their poor brothers to come and they would go ahead and eat. They were impatient and Paul is trying to show them that what they did in not waiting for them was a lack of love. They were envying each other's gifts as well. But Paul is saying that love would remove that enemy, enemy, because some wanted to speak, some wanted to prophesy and so on, while others would do, who were doing so and so on. Paul said that was all a mark of immaturity. He spoke about this in chapter 3 as well as chapter 4. In chapter 3 he said, let no one boast in man. That's arrogance or boasting. And then in chapter 4 verse 17 he says, some have become arrogant. The point I'm trying to make here is every one of these virtues mentioned in this verse is a correction of what they were doing. That's why he wrote 1 Corinthians 13 to show that their specific behavior was unloving and therefore was immature. He says, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. This is exactly what they were doing around the Lord's table. This is what it says back in chapter 11. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Paul says, that's not a loving thing to do. Then he says, love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Paul dealt with this also in chapter 6, when he talked about taking one another to court. 
Paul says that's not a loving thing to do. That's not what a mature Christian does. It's what an immature Christian does. And so he says, in back there in chapter 6, he says, It is already a defeat for you that you have lost seats with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul is saying here that's the way a mature person would act. When you have differences toward another Christian. You wouldn't try to get even. You wouldn't try to make them pay back as it were. But you would be loving. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So Paul says that's not a right, that's not a loving thing to do. It's not a mature thing to do to try to get revenge. <clears throat> and he goes on throughout the chapter to show that. Then when we get down to uh, verse, 11, verse 7, he says, Love endure all things. It means that love always perseveres, no matter what the persecution, the persecution or mistreatment, you always hang in there. Paul is looking ahead to the next section of the book, where he will deal with the permanency and eternality of love as compared to the temporariness of spiritual gifts. He says, love will last forever, spiritual gifts will not. They will pass away. Dr. Jane Getz makes a very insightful comment, I believe, concerning this passage. Let me quote him now. He says, within the space of four verses, Paul demonstrates in summary fashion that the Corinthians have little, if any, love. If they are listening at all, they cannot deny this indictment. Here is what these um, immature acts are. They are impatient. They are proud. They are unkind. They are rude, they are envious, they are self-seeking, they are boastful, they are easily angered, they encourage immorality, they reject truth, they are stumble blocks to other Christians, and they even deny the resurrection. We'll see that later in chapter 15. Now all of these things are being done, Paul says, because of a lack of love. So let's apply that to our own lives. If we are boastful, if we are easily angered, if we encourage immorality, if we reject truth, if we are proud, if we are enemies, and so on, it shows a lack of love. And it shows that we are immature believers. That's Paul's point here. Now, where did Paul get this idea of the importance of love? Is this something that he came up with himself? No. He got that from his master, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So love is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have. That is why it is important for us to understand, no matter how much we give to missions, no matter how much we do for anything else, if we don't have love towards one another here and show it to one another, it's of no effect, of no avail. Love is the foundation the people of God need if they are going to be effective witnesses. If they are going to win people to Christ, we do it by showing love for one another. That's Paul's point here. Now in verses 8 through 13, Paul deals with the permanency or eternality of love as compared to the temporariness of spiritual gifts. He's doing so to show that the way of love is a more excellent way 
by which to exercise spiritual gifts than the way of competitiveness that the Corinthians were involved in. Now this is an extremely important section of, the, of this particular passage because it has to do with spiritual gifts and how long they will be around. Let's read the passage together, please. When I was an infant, I spoke as an infant. I reckoned as an infant. When I became an adult, Paul wants to show both the permanence and the superiority of love. Now when you read this passage, you have to read it in its context. When he says, when I was an infant, or when I was a child, as the King James says, you could actually put the words, as you are, because he's talking to them and about the immaturity. So what he's saying is, here, when I was a child, the way you are, when I was a child, the way, when I spoke as a child, or immature, the way you were doing, when I thought as a child, the way you were thinking, that's what he's saying. He's trying to show that, hey, they are the infant, they are the immature ones. When I became an adult, I abolished the things of the immature or the infant. So he's calling these people at Corinth immature. They are babes in Christ in the carnal sense. And this is what he's saying here. And then he says, he states the fact that, law, that love is permanent. He says, love never fails. Love is greater than any gift, Paul says, and therefore should take pre precedence in, the, in uh, the exercise in the local church. In other words, it's not what gift we have or what we do that's priority, but rather how and why we do what we do with the gift we have, the manner in which it's expressed. He says, love never fails, but gifts are temporary. The word for fail, the word for fail here is the same word that Jesus uses in Luke when he says, it's, e it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear or to pass away than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So that's what he's talking about when he says, love will never disappear. Love will always be present. He says, here that um, no matter how long it may be, love will always be around even after all the gifts are gone. Therefore, we should prioritize and realize that the most important thing are not the gifts, but the way in which it is exercised. It should be done in a level way, in a, in a loving way. He goes on in the passage to contrast love with spiritual gifts. And he selects three specific gifts as representatives of all the gifts. He, rep he chooses two because of their priority to the Corinthians, which was prophecy as a knowledge. Both were, both were connected with divine revelation. Or I should say direct revelation. In this time that Paul was writing, God was still, still speaking directly to individuals to reveal his will and his word. And that's why prophecies and knowledge are so important. And also talking about the gift of languages or the gift of tongues. Because the Corinthians had placed an unwarranted emphasis on this particular gift. That's why Paul is emphasizing these gifts. 
they are representative of all the gifts because of the way in which the Corinthians were looking at it. He says, if they are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If they are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And notice the temporariness of these specific gifts. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done done away. Notice, prophecies will fail. It will be done away with. Tongues will cease. Now that's a particular word there. The form of the word here means they will cease of their own accord. In other words, the idea is that when they come to a certain point of maturity in the church, they will just automatically fade away. They will cease of their own is the idea. And uh, that is missed in many translations. Um, The NIV says they will be stilled. Knowledge will vanish away. Now this will mean that we will not know anything. He's talking about the gift of knowledge. That will be done away because we don't need it anymore at a certain point. The point of maturity. And then he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, we don't have all of it now. We just have a portion of it. That's what he's talking about here. So he's talking now about the cessation of the gifts. When will they stop? Notice what he says. But when perfection or the complete comes, the imperfect or the partial disappears or gone forever. That's a logical thing. In other words, when we have it all, we don't need the part only. That's what he's saying. When the perfect comes, the immature is gone. Or when maturity is reached, immaturity automatically comes out of the way. In other words, as we grow spiritually, the immature parts of us drops off automatically. We don't have to drop it off in the sense when you grow, you leave something behind automatically or else you don't grow. Isn't that right? You just automatically leave it. That's what he's saying about these gifts, especially tongues. They will automatically stop at a certain point of what he calls perfection. Now, the big question here, of course, is what does perfection mean and when will it occur? Now, perfect is the Greek word teleon. That's the word we have at Teleos Theological Training Institute. It means to reach a goal and can be completed, it can be translated complete, to perfect, or to mature. That's the meaning of the word teleon when he says, when the perfect comes. He says, when maturity is reached, is what he's saying. Now, there are three views concerning the maturity here or the perfection. The first view is that they're talking about the completion of script, the canon of scripture. In other words, some believe that once we get all the scripture, once we got the Bible, we don't need the gifts anymore. All right? All the gifts dropped away. That's one position. The other composition is that the perfection refers to the coming of Christ and the eternal perfect state. The third position is it refers to the maturity of the body of Christ. And that's the view I hold. In fact, I combine versus uh, uh, the second view and the third view. Because I believe that the maturity of the body of Christ does not occur until Jesus Christ comes. So I combine the two views myself. Then he gives us an illustration of the process of maturing and moving towards maturity or perfection. He says, when I was a child, as you are, when I talked like a child, as you do, Corinthians, I thought like a child, as you do now, I reasoned like a child, as you are, and as you do. 
But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. He's saying that's the thing to do. You don't remain a child after you become a man. You cannot be a child and mature at the same time, is what he's saying. Paul is describing then the process of maturing, going from childhood to adulthood. He's saying that the process of maturing is is also true of the church. Paul, in other words, is exalting love as maturity, and everything else is childish. Love is a sure sign of maturity. Everything else is childish. That's what he's saying here to the Corinthians. Love. His point is that gifts, especially those dealing with direct revelation, will be a part of the infancy of the church. Uh, And he's also saying that the Corinthians are still immature. Of course, the principle also holds true with the apostles and the prophets. He says that the church is founded upon what? The apostles and prophets. But a foundation is something that is only laid once. It was laid at the beginning of the church. You don't lay a foundation again and again and again. That's the reason for saying that prophets, the way they mention the scripture, and apostles are not necessary today in the same way they were necessary to the beginning of the church. Because the work that they were supposed to do was done. It's like a sign. It says that Paul tells us that tongues are for a sign to the unbeliever. What is a sign for? Well, they're doing some work on Paradise Island. They have a sign up there about men working. Now, they had it up there for a couple of days. It isn't there any longer. Why? Because the work was finished. You don't need the sign once the work has been completed. And that's what we have to understand when we talk about gifts. There are signs. Signs are not forever and ever. They're only until the work has been done. That's what Paul is saying here. He gives an illustration of perfect maturity in verse 12. He says, Now we see but a poor reflection. Of what? Of who? What is the poor reflection of? As in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. In other words, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? You see you, right? You see you back. But I think Paul is trying to say we should not see ourselves. He can say it in a moment. We should see Christ. You see? He says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. When is the then? The then is the perfect or the mature. When will that happen? Paul, I believe, is returning... Or rather, I believe he's referring to return of Christ. That's the time we shall see Christ face to face. And I believe he's saying here, when we see him face to face, we will know what we need to know. We don't need the gifts of knowledge or the gift of prophecy or anything anymore because we shall see the one that we've been waiting for. Now, we shall be, Paul says, we shall then see him face to face and we shall then be fully known as we are now fully known by him. Now, the word see and now refers to the gifts of prophecy and knowledge. In the church, the Corinthian church at this particular time, these were the gifts that were really emphasized. In the church's infancy, though, we could only not, we could only, uh, I'm going to put it this way, we could not see or understand everything completely. It was like looking into a mirror which reflected a very poor image rather than being able to look into someone's face directly or face to face. In other words, many times when you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see, right? 
you would go and you try to, well, I better put a little bit here, a little bit there, better wipe this off, a little bit of that. In other words, you didn't see anything perfect, right? But it's coming a time when we look into the face of the right person, we will be perfect. This is what he says. This is what John says. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. See that? It almost speaks directly to 1 Corinthians. What we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, that's the perfect. We will be like him. Because we will, what? See him as he is. See that? In other words, when we see him, we will be just like him. We will be, he will be reflected in us. Because that's when the perfect comes. This is the beautiful scripture. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So he's saying that's what we look towards when we will be like Christ, when we will see him face to face. And as far as we're concerned, we're going to fade away. But Christ will then be all in all. We, he will see us as, as we are, and we shall see him as he is, because we will be just like him. Now, I believe this is referring to what I call the ultimate perfection or state of maturity. Not even the written scriptures would be necessary then. We will talk to Christ who is the perfect revealer of all truth face to face. We will need no one to tell us anything because we will see him and we will know him as he is. Isn't that wonderful? We will know him as he is, you see. Paul is saying that even the means or channels of revelation outgrew their need once the revealer himself has come. When Christ comes and we see him face to face then, even the content of scripture, the content of scripture will be superseded by the actual presence of Christ. Today we look at the Bible as the written word. Jesus is what? The living word. There's coming a day when we will not need the written word because we have the living word. That's why the word will never fade away, but Christ will always be there. He's eternal. Something that we can have the Bible in heaven. I don't believe that. Because Jesus Christ is the one that would reveal everything to us. Now, if you read this passage carefully, you will see that the gift of languages is not mentioned at all. In verses 9 to 12, when it's talking about the complete, when Christ comes. The gift of tongues is not mentioned. Now, why is that? I believe it's because they ceased of their own when they met the purpose for their being given. Now, when is that in different parts of the world? I can't tell you. But as far as the gifts are concerned here, when the perfect has come, the gifts will not be there because they have already stopped because they have met the purpose for their existence. One thing is certain. This gift will not be here when Christ comes. And if it is true that he could come at any time, and it is, then some say that the gift of languages cannot be in operation today. Because if Christ comes today, that means that the perfect has come, and so on. Now, I won't get into all of that. That's a big discussion. Paul then restates his opening thesis. He says in verse 13, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's the most important thing that we could have in a church. Love for one another. What did Jesus say? Jesus says that the two great commandments, right? What are they? Love God and love one another. That's it. Love God and love one another. 
You, we do this, we meet all the commandments. That's maturity, loving God and loving one another. That's why it's important for us to have that base, as it were, as the people of God here. Loving one another. And if we do so, unbelievers will be attracted to us, not because of how we sing or how we preach or how we do anything, but rather because of how we love one another. That's what he's talking about here. Now, why is love the greatest and why will it never end? Again, I believe that John answers this question. He says in 1 John 4, The one who does not love God does not know God. Why? Because God is love. That's why we are nothing without love. Because you see, that's how God is manifested or seen in our lives. And that's why love will be eternal. Because God will never pass away. God will never fade away. God will always be in existence. God is love. God tells us to love one another. And Jesus says, as I have loved you. So Paul is saying here then that spiritual maturity really on the, uh, is based on the bottom line with our love for one another and how we do things. Why do you, why do I do what I do? How, what is the attitude that we show it in? Is it because I want to win points with somebody or I want to demonstrate some, something about myself? Paul said, if you do that, you're nothing in the church. But if you do the smallest thing out of love, then you mature. That's what Paul is teaching here. And so then what the world really needs, what the church needs, is love. What the church needs is love. Listen. Just put the church in the place of world. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just to love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for okay, everyone. So, beloved, what I say to you is, love God and love one another. Amen. The Lord bless you.